Just as many people dismiss romance novels as trashy books, there are a lot of TV shows, mostly geared at women, that get dismissed as trashy television. You know what I'm talking about. Shows like The Bachelor, Married at First Sight, my personal favorite, Love is Blind. Shows that embrace and reproduce fantasy about falling in love. I am not immune to these shows. I am watching Love is Blind season four with my kids. Do not report me. But I'm really interested in the place that these shows have in our culture, what they teach women about love and whether they are this essential question good for us. Luckily, we have an expert in our midst. This week, as a special bonus episode, we are talking to a former co-host of Hot and Bothered, Julia Argy. She has just published her first novel that is getting rave reviews. And it is set in the middle of a reality dating show. It's called The One, and it's out today. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered. Julia Grace Argy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to grace the feed. (laughs) congratulations on writing an amazing book i'm so glad it's finally out because for the last few years people have been like have you read anything good lately and i'll be like oh yeah the one by julia oh it's not out yet and i've had to feel like a jerk butt and now finally the people are gonna catch up to me yeah you you had the early in and now you have no more real bragging rights Can you tell us a little bit about the book? What's your elevator pitch? Let's hop into this elevator together. So the book follows a young woman named Emily who joins a reality dating show that is a bit like The Bachelor kind of meets Love Island. And it follows her over the course of the season as she goes on her journey to find love. Ding, we're at our floor. Well done. So I happen to know that you are a reality TV fan. I mean, specifically The Bachelor. You love The Bachelor. Yes. Well, I did love The Bachelor. And then I cured myself by writing this book of whatever had caused the deep pit in my soul to compulsively watch. It's all reality dating shows that I would consume en masse. It kind of peaked during the pandemic, and that is also when I started writing this book. And I stopped watching them because I didn't want what was happening in the seasons to affect what I was writing about. And I had enough backlog of information (laughs) in my mind from years of- seasons. Yeah, years of indoctrination floating around to not need to watch the current season in order to write the book. And then I never started watching again. So I'm a fan spiritually, but not in practice. I'm a lapsed reality TV fan. <laughs> um, what do you think it is that you used to love about them so much? Or maybe still love about them, but, you know, are not in practice? <laughs> I think that they are really multi-purpose depending on your mood. They are light enough where you can 
just kind of flick it on, fold your laundry, not really pay attention. Does it matter if you can tell the contestants apart? Like, not really. Like, you can kind of just vibe with it in the background, be passively entertained, or you can enter these very thriving communities among your friends online of people who are really digesting these, really engaging with the content and talking about what these shows say about our culture, what they say about us that we're watching them. So kind of whatever mood I was in, I was like, you know, this is a mood to watch some reality dating shows. (laughs) I got to say one of the best Thanksgiving dinner table conversations I've ever had was this past year where two thirds of the people at my Thanksgiving table had just finished watching Love is Blind And we got into a shouting match as to who the more wrong person in a party was. And it is just gossipy. And yet you do also end up talking about like toxic masculinity and all of these important things. And then also at the end of the day, I think what it really pushed in me that night was the gossip, right? It was a diverse group of people who didn't have a ton in common with each other, except that we'd all watch the show. And it was just fun to be able to dish about people. Yeah, it's I've watched with a bunch of different types of people in a bunch of different contexts. Vanessa, you'll think this is funny. We were on a common ground pilgrimage and Mm -hmm. I was in the UK and I watched Love Island in a common room with a bunch of British people who I had never met before. And I had the time of my life and these were strangers and... The only the only bad part was I was too ashamed to ask for subtitles, which I usually need for Love Island UK. I was like, I can't ask for subtitles in front of these actually <laughs> British people. That's too embarrassing. So I'm just going to have to piece it together. So you said, right, like lapsed, but you also said brainwashed and cured and that it filled a deep pit inside you. We've talked about what's awesome about these shows. And I think there's a lot that's awesome about these shows. But what do you think is like, toxic about these shows? A lot, a lot. And I think it's kind of a twofold issue. One is, and the book tackles this, I think quite a bit, is that even in these efforts to be more inclusive and representative of what it's like to be an actual living human person, they're still extremely exploitative to the individuals who are on the show. And there's a larger question there about, you know, the contestants on these shows are definitely getting something from being on TV. That thing usually is not a long-term partner because the shows don't really work, but they remain a very psychologically intense environment for people that you're very intensely surveilled and you are put in these competitive situations that kind of make you like go to a breaking point. And that's partially what people like to watch is people in very intense situations. So you're kind of complicit in all that's going on as you're watching this, these poor sleep deprived people, but also, you know, they leave and they can afford a really nice condo in London or like their Malibu beach house. And you're like, okay, was it worth it? I think that's one of the questions that the book asks. And then secondarily, just the shows are kind of talking about romance. Like you are going to get married. You're going to find the love of your life. You're going to be together forever. It's going to change your life. You're lonely. You're sad. You're poor. Now you're going to be rich. You're going to be with a hot person and you're going to be happy. 
And the idea that these weird competition style shows are somehow the way to get to a successful life point by finding a partner, I think is a very funhouse mirror way to approach existing as a person that I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah. I mean, it's the same concern that we have with romance novels, right? Like I am a super consumer of romance novels and part of what I love about them is that in my opinion, the good romance novels imagine a better world outside of just finding your partner. There's like a reimagining of the world. But I think that the critique that you're offering toward, you know, love-based reality TV shows is similar to a like very serious concern that I have about being a super consumer of rom-coms and romance novels. Are we equating the wrong things? Yeah, I also have read a bunch of romance novels and continue to do so. That I've not stopped since writing this book. And this book, obviously, it's set on a reality dating show, does have a very strong romantic component. But I think in some ways, it's not an anti-romance novel. Like, it's not anti—I'm pro-romance novels, but it's like an anti-romance novel. What does it mean to be anti-romance? I think Emily's journey, to use the lingo of the show— is questioning the idea that this quest to find love as a way to find yourself, is that actually an effective way to get personal gratification from your life? And I don't think I have a clear answer on that. I think it's something the book is exploring. I don't think the ending of the book says like, yeah, it's great. Like, bling bling ring and I don't think it says no you know go to therapy don't try to find a long-term partner I think it's in the middle as it should be but it doesn't have what you would consider a romance novel happily ever after and I think that can leave people who are excited about that concept and really wanting that concept in their fiction a bit deflated. So one of the characteristics of reality dating shows is what a lot of people call cattiness, right? Especially like on a show like The Bachelor, where you have 20 women fighting over one man. How were you thinking about that as you were writing these scenes of women living in a house together, vying for a man's attention? The women on the show are definitely the focus. My poor lead of the one Dylan does not get that much time on the page but the environment is so intense and close and claustrophobic with no media no cell phones no internet no music in a house with 30 strangers so the setups of the show are intentionally a hotbed for having interpersonal conflict and what is not shown because it's less interesting from the I want drama angle, is how these are resolved. Because unless the person gets sent home, they're still stuck in a house together and you still have to live together and you still have to cook your meals together. And so that kind of conflict and conflict resolution, I think is both more true to life and also true to what is going on behind the scenes of the show. Though I will say, I have never been on one of these shows. I've never worked on one of these shows. This is truly just speculation based on my imagination for the most part. So your book actually, 
I would argue, has two main characters, Emily, the contestant who we've talked about, but also Miranda, who is Emily's producer. One of the ways that I love that Miranda tries to use her power and wield it is to like she exploits a lot of feminist rhetoric. Yeah. Tell me about that. Like, is she a feminist or is she like just using whatever she's got to use nearby? That is such a good question. I've never thought about whether she's a feminist or not. I'm not going to answer. I'm not in charge of who's a feminist or not. That's not my purview. Margaret Atwood, Britney Spears. <laughs> That's going to be the next podcast is you just listing people. And I'll be like, no, hell no. Not <laughs> but yeah, I think something that I was interested in the book is the way that these shows try to respond to our culture. I think sometimes people think these shows are making our culture. They are powerhouses that change the way we think about romance. And I think this is partially true, but also, and this is part of Miranda's arc as a producer, you're like, these people are kind of at the whims of the viewers. And as viewers are requesting different types of storylines to be on the show, they are trying to make mass market feminist rhetoric who will appeal to everyone, which is a very fine line to walk because I don't think feminist rhetoric is supposed to appeal to everyone. So I think it's supposed to. I think it just doesn't. <laughs> yeah. In, a, in an ideal world, everyone would be on board. Yes. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately that doesn't seem to be the case. No, super doesn't. And so she she's basically doing marketing for like This seems like a palatable storyline that will appeal to a lot of people. And she's pulling from her contestants' lives to try to piece that together in what she hopes will be an interesting little B-plot of the season. And we see that all the time in reality shows. And it's, I find it kind of nauseating. That's always some of the things that I really struggle with watching the most. It's like you get a contestant and they're all of a sudden talking about their dead parent. And it's like, did you really want to be doing this? And like, what made you do this? And do you feel better afterwards? I don't know the answer to that. And I hope some of those people really feel better afterwards talking about how, you know, they had a traumatic injury, how their parents divorced, whatever hard things they've gone through in life. I hope that that's really healing for them to talk about on national television and have preserved for eternity. But I find it personally a very scary idea that that is expected of people on the show and that we as viewers are supposed to find that really interesting. Like, I see these people crying. I'm like, go take a break. Like, I don't need to be watching this. Like, I'm not a therapist. Like, I don't want to be part of this. I was more into the, like, idea of you getting a nice boyfriend than I was about you talking about how you have $300,000 in debt. Like, that, (laughs) I'm really on a different page. And so that's where the impulse for me to talk about that kind of manipulation in terms of present day political rhetoric comes into the show. Like, is this helpful to anyone on the show, off the show? Is anyone enjoying this? Why is this possibly being broadcast to people? Because I personally am mystified. Yeah, and we see that, right? Pearl Sagal wrote an article about a version of this in The New Yorker, right? This like idea of trauma porn and that we all on 
TikTok and Instagram and YouTube exploit our own traumas for views, right? So this is happening in the context of your novel because of a producer. It's like an embodied person in your novel, but it's just like a cultural sway that one has to resist and think about, okay, am I sharing this trauma because it is actually good for me and cathartic for me and I'm finding people online who can relate and this is helpful for them or am I feeding a beast and am I going to regret it later? And that's part of the initial impulse that I was having to write the book talking about what it feels like to be performing your own life for other people as opposed to living your life as a person yourself. My initial interest in setting it on a reality television show was obviously I love reality dating shows, but I was very interested in this idea of performance and surveillance where I was feeling like through social media, through my presence on the internet, through existing as a person in our time, that I was like being watched all the time in a, I mean, maybe some people think it's a paranoid way, but just like, I know my data is being used. I know if I go on Instagram, everything is being curated for me. I know if I post something on Instagram, I'm performing a version of myself. And I was thinking about the psychic toll that this had on people and reality television very quickly became an easy way for me to imagine what that was like 24 seven and what you were talking about, Vanessa, and the ways that, you know, we all kind of become complicit as viewers as potential contestants and as producers, depending on what role in the ecosystem we're playing in terms of perpetuating these kinds of systems where that kind of disclosure is expected and compulsory as opposed to freeing and enjoyable, or if not enjoyable, at least like consensual. (laughs) Yeah, rather than pride. It's so good. Like, you're so smart, but your book is even smarter. So everyone should go read it. Thank you. But before we wrap up, a few years ago, at the height of the pandemic, we hosted a season of Hot and Bothered called Twilight and Quarantine. I know you tried to block this, but we did that. (laughs) We read the Twilight books together. Yes. It was awesome. We ended every episode by putting something in a care package, and we would fictionally ship it to the fictional Bella Swan in Forks, Washington. And I am wondering if there's something that you would want to put in a care package for Emily. That is a great question and really a throwback. Though now that I'm thinking about it, I probably started writing this book while I was doing Twilight and Quarantine. So if anyone finds any similarities, tweet at Hot and Bothered. What would I get? Did you prepare an answer for this, Vanessa? I mean, my first thought is like one of those transponders that like ruins radio frequencies or like a white noise machine so that for like half a second, she could have a bit of privacy. While she's on the show. Right. Okay. I was thinking about after and I was like um, some kind of like little explosive device to blow up her phone, like (laughs) get her off social media. Don't let her watch the season back. Don't let her read what people are saying about her. She, she's she got to get free. I, I mean, I love that for her. Well, everybody, The One by Julia Argy is out today. You can 
request it from your library. You can buy 20 copies and give it as gifts to all of your friends. You can just buy yourself a copy, which is what I really recommend in addition to buying 10. You probably just want to give them away as goodie bags at your next dinner party or event. We are going to be back in a few days with a regular episode, but until then, we hope that you enjoy reading The One by Julia Argy. You've been listening to Hot and Bothered. If you can, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash hotandbotheredrompod. We're a Not Sorry production and our executive producer is Ariana Nubman. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks as always to our Jane Level patrons, Baroness, Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Night Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, who recently watched 10 Things I Hate About You with me, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and our two newest aristocrats who have moved into town, Tucker Kratt and Lauren Bayer O'Connell. Thank you this week, especially to Julia Argy. Everybody go buy her book right now. The one. Also, to Laura Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Aramas, Nikki Zoldian, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. Thanks, Julia. I'm so proud of you. Thanks. I'm proud of you, too.